Hi, I'm Len Epp from Lean Pub, and in this episode of the Front Matter Podcast, I'll be interviewing Daniel Vacanti. Based in the Miami Fort Lauderdale area, Dan is co-author of the Kanban Guide, co-founder of ProCanman.org, and co-founder of Actionable Agile, where they provide world-class software training and consulting to help businesses improve their flow and achieve predictable product delivery. You can follow him on Twitter at Dan Vacanti and check out his websites at ProCanman.org and ActionableAgile.com. Along with his colleague Pratik Singh, Dan is also co-host of the Drunk Agile podcast, which you can find on YouTube and wherever else you find uh, podcasts. I can uh, say uh, from experience that it's a really fun podcast to listen to, just really great conversations. Uh, Dan is the author of the LeanPub book, Actionable Agile Metrics, Volume 2, Advanced Topics in Predictability. In the book, Dan provides a comprehensive guide on how to use flow metrics and analytics to get the predictability your customers crave and really goes into a lot of detail at an advanced level based on his previous books. In this interview, we're going to talk about uh, what Dan's been up to since he was last on the podcast just over a little bit a year ago and about his uh, brand new book. So thank you very much, Dan, for being on the Front Matter podcast. I was I was going to say, um, you know, long time listener, first time caller, I enjoy the show, but but you you know, I've, I've been on this a couple of times. So thanks so much for having me. Re- really glad to be back. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, it's, it's really great. What have you been up to in the last year? Writing a book yeah. <laughs> for, for one. Yeah. Um, but, but, um, but bo- mostly, I mean, the, the things that, that you just mentioned, um, trying to get the, the ProCombine.org community, you know, off the ground, that's, you know, that, that's been certainly a learning experience and, and an exciting one, I think for, for any, any followers of, um, of what we're trying to do with, with Combine and, and flow principles in general. Um, but yeah, but between that, between my work on actionable agile, actionable agile software, uh, and writing a book, that's, I, th- I don't know. I think that, that, that that fills up a year, I think, pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And have you been doing work on on a course or courses as well? I did do for the first book. I did do a video course, um, uh, you know, uh, for uh, and, and released it on a couple of platforms. We, you know, let's not talk about how well that has or has not formed or whatever. But, but yes, I mean, there there is. A, if people are interested, you know, please let me know because it, it it is out there if anybody's. You know, if you want to learn a little bit more about the, the metrics themselves. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Um, so yeah, so why don't we uh dive into talking about your new book, which is uh, you know, advanced topics and predictability. So for anyone interested uh, in sort of getting up to the advanced level, the two previous books are actionable agile metrics for predictability and when will it be done? Um and I think our I think our last interview was for when it will be done. When will it be done? Um yeah. And uh, so if you're looking for a resource to sort of like uh, sort of, you know, get get ready for that book, that's that's a really good place to start. Um, and so I guess, uh, it's the interesting place to start, I guess, is with the story of Wilt Chamberlain and his, uh, Mm. is his sort of best individual performance game. And so I was wondering if you could sort of set the stage by talking about what happened in that game. Yeah. So I was actually, um, uh, the, uh, the gentleman that you had on earlier, Pratik Singh, who we were talking about before, um, clued me into the, to a podcast by, um, by Malcolm Gladwell. Um, and and I'm not I'm not a huge Malcolm Gladwell fan. Not not that he's bad, but I, I don't know. I just he's never done anything for me. Um, where Malcolm Gladwell talked about this particular game, Will Chamberlain. Where if if anybody's not familiar, Will Chamberlain's the only person in NBA history to score 100 points in a single game. It's, it's never been done before. It hasn't been done since. Nobody's really really technically come close. Um, and so I listened to this podcast, and and Malcolm Gladwell came to all the all of these conclusions. And I was like, I'm, I'm not quite sure that that that's right. And I, I didn't know much. I didn't know any better, but it didn't. It just didn't sound right when I was listening. To it. So I went and I did a uh, did, did a whole bunch of research about what happened 
that night and that whole season, as a matter of fact. Um, found some, found a really obscure NBA website with a bunch of statistics, you know, that I was able to download and do some analysis and kind of, it was, that that study was a nice way to, for me to kind of set the stage for, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that's kind of hidden in data, kind of almost purposefully hidden in data. That's just really kind of the nature of data um, that you have to be really, really careful how you tease some of this stuff out because you might come to the wrong conclusions as Gladwell did, as I, I think Gladwell did. Um, if you're not careful, yeah. So I don't know if that's where you wanted to go. Yeah, no, that's, that's definitely that's, that's exactly where I wanted to go. Um, uh, you know, I'm 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 definitely uh, not in the uh, not to you know pick on a famous person. I'm definitely not in a, a fan of the a fan of Malcolm Gladwell's. Um, I find that he kind of does make mistakes and kind of makes conclusions that seem a lot more certain than they than they ought to be. It's a great way yeah. to sell books. So good for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I could learn a few things from Malcolm Gladwell. I'm sure. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. But you know, like the the, the phenomenon of of actually like to, not to go specifically of his fame sort of speaks to the kind of desire that people have for I think easy answers, um, yeah. which is again the easy thing to say, a hard hard thing to sort of say what you what you were like what what do you mean then then what would you actually do? But you actually do this in the book, um, and so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that that story. So like I think part of the distraction that one can have when like sort of looking at this kind of outlier to use a loaded word in the conversation. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, but like there's this outlier game and one of the things Will Chamberlain had done was switched to underhand free throw. Right. Right. And that, that was the whole premise behind the podcast was that it was that switch, the switch from overhand shooting overhand free throws to shooting underhand free throws, that that's what allowed Wilt to, um, to, to achieve that, that point score. Um, what was interesting is if, if, you, if you go do some research and, and you go look at the data, you'll see that Wilt Chamberlain had been shooting underhand free throws pretty much that whole season. And not only did he have one of the best shooting performances, which is the one that Malcolm Gladwell called out, but he also had one of the worst shooting performances, not only of that season, but of his whole career. Um, and that worst shooting performance happened just four games before the best one. You know, and so that's the thing, you know, it's like, you can't really just look at, I love that you use the word outlier. You can't really just look at this one data point and assume that there's signal there. This is really kind of the whole point of the book and assume that there's a, there's signal there without looking at the context of the whole data set and the, you know, the whole conditions under which that, that data was collect, collected because it might, it might just be noise, you know, in, in which I don't want to go too much of a spoiler alert because I want you all to buy the book, but, uh, you know, but that's 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 really kind of the premise is when you're looking at data, what's really signal, what's really noise. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that and one of the things I like about the premise of the book is that even if you're like kind of getting to an advanced level, this this can still be this is actually now you're ready <laughs> to yeah. really understand really understand these things. But you do have to build a bit of a foundation in advance. And starting with a, an example from sports with and sports sort of data, which is something most of us are familiar with, and the way people can get kind of obsessed with it. I just wanted to start there, but like what we're really talking about is basically like industrial processes and, and, you know, people watching the quality of like ball bearings being produced and things like that, which is like incredibly serious. If you've ever been in a moving vehicle, you know, for example, you, you, you know, you want this sort <laughs> yeah. of uniformity to be tracked somehow and you want the people who are looking at it not to be distracted by, by, by sort of noise. That's actually a signal and signal that's actually a noise and things like that. And so just to get going on that note, to give people a bit of a sense of like how technical these things can get, but how kind of there is a solution at the end of it. 
Um, what's variability in in data analysis or in data? Yeah. The, so the idea is whenever whenever you're collecting data, whenever I mean, especially some type of measuring measurement like measuring how well we shoot free throws, how measuring the width of ball bearings. You know, whenever 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 there's there's some type of data collection, and and like I said, like in the book, I really do focus on measurements. Um, there's always going to be changes from one quantity to the next, right? I mean, you will never, you will never ever, I should say never ever, I can think I can say that confidently, um, when you're making measurements, you know, not, it, it not only wants to, it shouldn't even be your expectation that every time you measure something, you're going to get the exact same answer every time. That's just, that's just not reasonable. That's just not how the world works. Um, and so variation then is, well, what, what are those changes from one measurement into the next or from one data point to the next? What, what are those small changes? Um, and the question becomes, well, if we have to expect changes, then the real question that we want to answer is, well, how much change is too much change? At what point does a change signal, you know, some fundamental um, shift in our process, you know, or, or something like that. And so that's, that's, that's what variability is. And that's what the study of variability aims to, you know, to go is to, like I said, to be able to separate out that, that signal from noise. 99% of the time you're dealing with noise, right. And, and you should not be responding to those little shifts. Imagine, I think I mentioned this in the book. Imagine if every time, you know, one night Wilt shoots 87%, and then the next time he, the next very next night he shoots 50%. Well, does that mean he's gotten worse? Well, no, that's to be expected. You know, it's like so, and yet the the the, the mysteries of data and people's uh, engagement with it. You know, and and I mean, there's so many experiences that I think we've all had. Like, if you've ever been in like kind of, I don't think I really have, but like if you've ever been at a job with a, with a manager whose job is to measure you, mm. and you know they come to your desk and they're like, last week you did this many tasks, and this week you did this many tasks. What what happened? You right. know, and it's like the one answer is. There's going to be variability, but uh, there's an example you give in your book of like where there's just like all these red flags, and they're like, oh yeah, there's red flags. To, to, you know, that's just variability. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, that's the other thing, right? <laughs> and it's like, well, you know, and so and so one, but that's one of the things where like sort of like you need to have these sophisticated analyses, like you know Monte Carlo simulation and stuff like that, that you need to, to like really have an understanding of those things and to get over the idea that your intuition or your kind of folk science, you know, is good enough to, for managing people and processes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that, that does, and, and, um, you know, not to pick on any particular agile framework or anything like that, but that, that happens a lot where a team will be measuring itself and they'll be like, well, yeah, you know, last time we did this many things and this time we only did this many things. Some, you know, something's wrong. Um, well, no, no, or, or look, we got better. Well, no, that's not necessarily, necessarily true either. Um, so it's, you're right. It's, it's, it's getting to a level of comfort to recognize that variation it's, um, it's not only to be expected, it's, it's intrinsic. I mean, you, you, you just, you just can't escape it. So you, you really have to get comfortable with that. And the second you get comfortable with that, that's, what's going to open your eyes to some of these other statistical techniques. Like you're, you're talking about, you know, if if we start talking about probabilistic forecasting and things like that, like Monte Carlo simulation, and why those types of things are so important, so that we can model the variability that we are going to experience and talk about from a forecasting perspective, if we can expect this much variability, well, you know, what, what, what in terms of risk management, um, in terms of risk management, uh, what what should we be planning toward? You know, so 
I said a lot there without really saying too much. So <laughs> good, no, no, I think you, I think you did. The one the one thing you're reminding me of is it's, it's very interesting. Is the um, uh, you know notion notion from this is maybe a bit of a tangent, but notion from theoretical physics where like we've got a model of how things work, but when we look at them, it sort of yep. you know collapses them down into a sort of definite state. But exactly. the act of looking actually does have an impact on the system itself. And so I just bring that up as a kind of fun analogy for something very serious, which is that, you know, to come up with a series of data, I have to be looking at the looking at the process, which to some extent means interfering in it, interfering in it just directly, right? I, 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 absolutely. You know, and that's and that's where the danger creeps in because that's where you get those management people coming in and saying, well, you did this much last year. Why can't you do this much this week? I mean, that's, you know, if we start reading Deming, Deming would start calling you know, things like that, you know, tampering, taking action when action isn't warranted. Well, you know, when the data doesn't, doesn't suggest that we really, that's that's really going to make things worse in the, in the long run. Like I said, you going back to the Wilt example, example, if he shoots 87% one night and then 50% the next night, is it going to completely change the shooting technique because because of that? And imagine if every night he shot differently, he changed the shooting technique. Well, after a while, he'd just be he'd just be a mess, right? You know. And so that's that that's really and but yet that's I think as agile practitioners, a lot of times we're actually taught that you know we're we're taught that hey if this if this sprint is different than the last sprint, well okay we we got to look at that and we got to we got to talk about what we need to change in our process to make sure that that we're getting better. Yeah, it's uh, uh, one thing I wanted to talk about because I was, I was sort of curious learning about it from your book and just to give people a sense of what the advanced the advanced part of <laughs> volume two is, is um you talk about, I mean, there's PBC, which is process behavior charts, and there's XMR charts. Um, and, you know, people should read the book to sort of learn about this. And you really should, right? You shouldn't just go off what you hear on some podcast and go, now I understand that, uh, yeah. which, is, which is true of all things. But I'm just looking at an example here. Um, uh, it's from chapter seven, XMR charts and the four basics of flow. And so there's two charts, one on top, one on bottom, typically for these XMR charts. And I was wondering if you could just give maybe a little bit of an explanation. Of, imagine I knew absolutely nothing about what these were. What's the top chart and what's the bottom chart and what are they telling yeah. me? Right. So the, um, the XMR chart is a special case of a PBC. So just to get our terminology right for the listeners, right? For the listeners. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, we have we have this kind of generic term that's called process behavior chart. A specific instance of a process, a specific instance, not the, um, is called an XMR chart. And it's called an XMR chart because it's actually two charts. It's an X chart and it's an MR chart. So that's that's kind of what you're getting to, get, getting at. Um, the X chart is the uh, is the top chart and. I think one, I, I don't know this for sure. It's just something I guess I've assumed, but I think the reason it's called an X chart is because you kind of think of it, it's what you're really doing is you're plotting a random variable, essentially. Remember I said, you know, if we're doing this data collection, you know, any flow metric specifically is a random variable, you know? And so that's, that's kind of why it's called, called an X chart. Cause that's, you're, you're just plotting every instance of a new data value you get. You're just plotting that in what's called a, a run chart. So, which is a, a time sequence ordered um, plot of, you know, of, of the data values, right? That's, that's really, and so from that, there's some certain calculations. Again, you have to read the book to figure out what these calculations are, uh, but there's some certain calculations that we can do on the next chart to draw boundaries around what's reasonable vari variability, what's to be expected and what's exceptional variability, what's, 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 what's not normal, what, what probably, what potentially represents signal. That's the purpose of the X chart. 
Um, the problem with the X chart, if there is a problem with the X chart, there really isn't, is that um, not all signal can necessarily be detected that way. Further, <laughs> you don't want to get way too technical here. Further, one of the ways that you're detecting, you know, one, one of the one of the elements of the calculation, I guess I should say, in terms of how much variability is too much variability, is this idea of, of tracking the moving range, which is where the MR comes from. So you're you're, you're taking the um, each successive difference. So each time a new dot comes in, you're you're measuring the difference between the previous dot. That, that's called a moving range, and you plot those moving ranges on the bottom chart. Like I said, for two reasons. Number one, because that's yet another way to potentially detect signal is you know if those moving ranges get too wide. Um, but then number two is it's kind of a sanity check because the moving range is how we're calculating variability. We can take a, a look at the moving range chart and make sure that our limits are drawn properly on on our X chart. So if anybody ever shows you an X chart without the without the corresponding moving range. It's potentially suspect because you don't know. You don't know truly what that variability is unless you see the moving ranges. And so I, I, I wave my hands a lot there. Is this, yeah. is this going to be a video? No, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're publishing. We're publishing video now. Um, uh, so okay. there will there will be some video. But I just I use my hands all the time too. Um, but uh, the just to, to draw on my own personal experience. So for example, if I'm looking at the um, if I'm plotting the let's say the, the share price. Mm -hmm. uh, one exercise that people will do is they'll have one chart that's just a change in the daily change in the share end of day share right. price. Exactly. And yes. then what you might do, so that would be the top chart. And then the bottom chart would be, what's the average change in the last five days? Is that the kind of thing that's being shown in the moving range chart? Uh, absolutely. Cause I've got the, I got the feeling it wasn't, it wasn't quite that. Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's close. You, you could technically see that from a moving range chart, but, but really in the bottom chart, what you're seeing is so. Let's say that one, you know, one day the share price is fifty. The next day the share price is fifty-two. Well, the difference in those two values is is two. So we plot we plot that two on the MR chart. Um, then the next day the closing the closing oh, price was I see. was you know thirty-two, and right. so the difference in fifty-two to thirty-two is twenty. So we plot that on that twenty on the moving range. I got it. So the top um, one is you're seeing the the absolute values within the boundaries of the total. Yep. Right. Yep. Data thing. Okay. And when we're talking about boundaries here, we're talking about upper boundaries and lower boundaries. And the example you can Correct. book is like, if you were rolling dice, the top boundary would be six, the bottom would be one. You're never going to see, you're never going to see a seven or a zero. That's an analogy to kind of how you actually do most, most data analysis, but you know, it's, it's along those lines. So you're actually seeing things within this, this variation. Exactly. 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 Yeah. Because, because we know, and the dice example, dice is a great example, I think, because if you ever see a seven or you see a zero, it's a pretty good indication there's something wrong, right? If you're rolling a six-sided die and you see a seven, there's there's probably something wrong there, and that's exactly what we're looking for in our data analysis. One, uh, since since this this book is sort of you know sort of meant for people who are sort of want to want to learn this, and it might be for people who want to bring these kinds of analysis into their organization or sort of change the way people do things in their organization. One um, really interesting point you make uh, in the book is that like, although shooting underhand free throws might be a superior technique objectively and with all the analysis there is there might be just incredible cultural pressure that makes it impo basically impossible for people to adopt it so even though it's better people won't do it and you know uh you know a famous example would be in the last few years the sort of three-point shot 
has become much more popular in basketball because, you know, it, in, it, there was just a kind of, someone just sort of went and said, hey, why don't we just like do, free, like, genius, but like, you know, why don't we just do three point shots more and see if that yeah. helps us score more points and win more games? It turns out it does. Uh, but yeah. in the past, you know, like the dunk was like the, <laughs> the, the height of, of scoring, right? Because it's exciting. But yeah. like, and there's, it just, I'm just I'm sort of like circling around, but the idea of like sports where like reputations and fame and billions of dollars are at stake. And yet still, you know, if you've ever seen the movie Moneyball, you know, the idea of like just using computers was like, why would we do that? It's not in our culture. And then it's basically, it's not kind of like manly enough to yeah. do that kind of analysis. And the, the, it's, I just find it endlessly fascinating the way at the very same moment that people put on sort of the, the affect that they're being no nonsense, they're completely full of shit. And so what, totally. what, what can you do if you're like sort of try to introduce a kind of analysis into an organization where it's just culturally, like not just not done, but like shunned? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, uh, if I can, cause a, a similar, for me, a similar great trend is in the NFL now with, with more teams going for it on fourth down. Um, mm. we've known for years, if, if not decades that data supported, you know, Go, going up for four, on fourth down more more often you know than the not and it's only really been in the past couple of years that teams have really embraced that because you're right it was kind of culturally shunned this is this is not you you play it safe you know if it's fourth down you punt it and you go for field position and, and things like that because that that's what wins wins you games and no no one ever got fired no coach ever got fired for punting on fourth down well it turns out as you're pointing out it turns out a lot of times you're taking much more risk by punting, you feel like you're not taking more risk. You feel like you're playing it safe, but you're actually taking more risk because you're endangering your ability to score. Or you're endangering your ability to, you know, to keep your defense off the field. You know, you're endangering, you know, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, it, it, it's a good question that you pose, and there, maybe the reason I'm waffling a bit is because I don't know that I have a good answer. But I think, I mean, I think this this data is a good start. But I think, like the three point shot in the NBA or going for fourth on, on, on fourth down, it's like, it's hard to argue with success, you know? So it's like, I, I think once, once you, once you see it, even though, even though the data may have supported it for years, once, once people, you know, acknowledge that it, it can be successful, um, that that's probably the, you know, the, the tipping point, we're just going to use all of Gladwell's, uh, don't blame it. There'll be another Malcolm Gladwell reference. Uh, yeah. Uh, but you know, that, that's really, I mean, that's a very, very practical point that you made at the end though, there were like, if, if you're listening to this and you're thinking of trying to introduce these kinds of things into your organization or your consulting work or something like that, it's the oldest MBA thing in the book, have a case study to show how it increased revenue. Uh, if you can, you know, I, I say this not as, as like just having interviewed lots of experts and this kind of thing, not being one myself, but like, if you can show how it's going to move the bottom line. It, that's no guarantee it's going to work. But if you start with that as your pitch, like this will improve the bottom line, you know, like it's, it, it, then, then, then at least at the very least, you know, people are going to sit up in their seats and pay attention. Well, and you know, I, this is where I always fall on, on Deming too, you know, uh, Deming had some, some great sayings about this, you know, one, one of his most famous is, you know, in God, we trust all others bring data, you know? Um, and then, you know, without, uh, you know, without, without, without data, you're just an, I don't think he said this, but there's another, without data, you're just another asshole with an opinion and, you know, you know, and, and things like that. So even, yeah. even, 
even before the success for me i think you have to you have to collect that that data you have to have some you know some type of insight and and to plug the book though you also have to know what to do with that data right to draw you know a little bit on my own experience i ran a hockey stats website for a while because i was just infuriated that like when i look at like the standings for the nhl it's like i'm a 19th century businessman with a newspaper and i see a, a table of rows and columns and it's like but if you've if you've been in the investment and stock world it's kind of like oh we've got bloomberg terminals with charts now you know and that that even that's a very dated reference but like you know we've got charts that can show performance over time why don't we have something like that showing that for a team's performance over a season you know and like anything would be good like just win loss win loss win loss like i call it a heartbeat chart you know something like yeah. that but then so like you know trying to fit in these like the games played aren't the number of games played aren't the same because you're going on the date you know like the chart the, the table is showing you the date so that the games played is different and you know the kind of like then they, they do these clunky things where it's last five you know win loss tie last 10 win loss yeah, tie yeah. stuff like that yeah. all of these things easily easily represented in charts uh but for some reason convention just you know means that you don't look at those kinds of things and then in that particular case with sports i think like a lot of the 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 Sports exists as basically a kind of soap opera, largely for people. They love the sort of moment to moment, you know, big reveal, you know, oh, it's actually, you know, like, you know, this, what's the sports version of like, it's an identical twin, you know, like kind of stuff. And people, <laughs> people love that. They love, they actually love the day to day. And I just find that that sort of like one of the reasons sports is such a good analysis for business process stuff is that like the day to day soap opera actually is what's sort of more important to some people than the like kind of like, boring kind of pencil behind the ear green eye shade kind of mm. stuff work you need to do yeah maybe maybe you're pointing out why my books maybe don't sell as well as they should because what what i'm what i am promoting is being boring right if, you know if if your day-to-day -day is drama like what you're talking about then you're almost certainly not predictable you know i'm you know i'm a big proponent of making your process as boring as possible um because if it's boring it's probably predictable yeah. but yeah yeah, I mean, well, maybe I need to change. I need to change my approach. Thanks, Len. Thanks for that. <laughs> no, it's just, it's just, it's just, uh, just an observation I've had that, like, you know, that you know, the the um, uh, often again, again, it's sort of like that sort of weird contrast that at the very moment that people are putting on the affect that they're very serious, it's actually yeah. kind of entertainment that yes. really, yeah. really they're engaging in. For sure, for sure. Uh, but I definitely, I mean, you know, jokes aside, this is a very good book that Dan's been working on for a long time. And like, and like it, it does build on the work of his previous two books and it's, it's, you know, there's, there's, you know, interesting sports analogy in there, but like, there's lots of very serious stuff and it's a really good way to learn about these techniques. Uh, in the last part of the interview, as you know, we like to talk about the person's experience writing and stuff like that. So, and there are people who skip to the end, uh, if they, if they find a way to do so to learn about that. So how did you go about writing this book? Did you set aside a block of time every day, you know, I'm going to do, get up in my first hour in the morning, I'm going to write. Did you, you know, tell your family you're not going to be seeing me on the weekends kind of thing? How, how did, how did that work? This, this book was actually kind of a happy accident. Um, I, cause it, 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 it had been, it's been almost 10 years since I published my first book, the, the, the volume one of this book. Um, and I actually sat down to try and maybe come out with a second edition of that because, you know, horror of horrors, there, there is maybe some outdated stuff or certainly some things that may, maybe need to be touched up in, in that book. So I, I, I sat down and, and when I was revisiting my notes from that first book, I realized there was a whole bunch of stuff that didn't make the cut, right? You know, it was left on the editing room floor. 
And I was like, okay, well, maybe the first thing I'll do to kind of ease my way into this, maybe the first thing I'll do is just create a blog series on all this stuff that didn't make the, the cut for the first book. And as I was doing that, I realized uh, I've got I've got easily enough material for uh, you know for another book, and and the, the the book is really a tale of two halves. I mean, the the two halves kind of play well together, but really there's the first section and then there's a section second section, and it is a bit jarring the way that the book moves from. I know I'm doing a good job of selling the book here, of moving from section one to section two, but that that's really more due to the fact that there was kind of all these leftover pieces that were that I was trying to um, try and try to make a cohesive whole. Um, so that that was really kind of the inspiration of the book, and then because uh, because I already had all this stuff, it was really just a matter of editing it. So whenever uh, or you know or polishing it or or or, or, or uh, augmenting, so it was really just whenever I had time, you know, any on any given day. Um, I I tried to generally set myself a goal of doing some writing most most days, you know, whether that's five hundred words, a thousand words, whatever. Mm, right. a, a good day for me is like three thousand words. Um, just as kind of a rough heuristic, um, but that was just I just tried to set a goal for myself, and and you know you you do that, and pretty soon within a month or ish or so you've got a book, you know. That's really great. Yeah, no, that yeah, that's interesting. Some people do, do the kind of time block, and other people do the words, the the number of words mm-hmm. kind of target. I'm definitely actually in the latter in the latter camp myself. It's kind of set yourself a number of words to write, and if you get it done in half an hour great you know you yeah. know go go get a drink or something like that uh and if it takes you right. six hours you're like mm, well i've just really got to grind it out and it's really good for motivation and sort of sense of productivity and stuff like that as well which when you're writing a book is very important like mm-hmm. trying to maintain a good mood if you can about what yeah. you're doing and like although these these targets seem arbitrary and they kind of are having them and meeting them every day or every week or what have you is a really important part of like you know feeling like you're making progress and, and getting towards it um, yeah. uh, and I, there was one more question I wanted to ask you about that. Um, oh yes, you know, sorry, not question, but observation. That was a very good description you gave of, and I'd never really quite thought of it before, but whenever you're writing a book, there's a lot of stuff that ends up on the cutting room floor and actually kind of like keeping off, you just reminded me, keeping a folder of cuts mm-hmm. would actually be a really interesting thing to do. And I'm sure there's other authors who do that, but like, you know, my cuts always end up in sort of just kind of left in a previous version or something like yep. a previous yep. numbered version, but not separated out into a, a place of cuts. And that would be a really interesting thing, even just for the book itself that you're writing, but for any kind of subsequent blog, if you're writing a nonfiction book, any subsequent blog posts or something like that, there's definitely value to be had in that. And in your case, like it's a whole, a whole new book, which is great. Yeah. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, well, uh, Dan, uh, thank you very much for being on the podcast again. And thank you very much for using LeanPub as one of the platforms for getting your work out there. We really appreciate it. Well, th- uh, thanks very much for having me. Thanks for the hard work that you do at LeanPub. Like I said, if, if as we were talking about before, if I didn't have an outlet like LeanPub, I don't know that I would have ever taken the the author plunge. So I just want to say thanks so much for uh, for doing that. And who knows, maybe sometime soon I will be back on with second editions of some of the previous books that I've got. I'd, I'd love to be able to come in and talk a little bit more about that. But uh, until then, hey. thank you so much. Thanks very much. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a Lean Pub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.